1: Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com.
2: So it might take you 10 years to figure out what we've done 45 times already, right? And now I bring that intellectual property into the company and say, here's how we're going to d- design this a little differently. Here's how we're going to change your compensation plans for your salespeople to actually incentivize them to give you more stable revenues or, 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 You know more visibility into the future revenues and earnings of that business that you may not have figured out, or may not figure out because you may not be in an environment a circle of people who have dealt with that before, and so that's why the expertise that we bring is often more valuable than the capital.
3: My graduates from my school, being Forbes, backdrop, (laughs) backdrop, a mic drop, drop. backdrop, backdrop. All right, guys, welcome back, EYL. This is a very special episode.
0: Let's call it the Icon Edition.
3: It's also the earliest episode that (laughs) we've ever
4: recorded.
2: Oh, I thought it was your choice to get here this early.
3: Well... I mean, once we got the time slot, we oh, know, okay. make All it right. work. We, we opened up 24 hours. <laughs> you got it. I'm with you. <laughs> so, um, and I did get the memo. As far as the, the <laughs> I, well, well you didn't get the memo. I did you not. Get the, yeah. did I not stayed get on the memo. brand, and everybody else looks <laughs> in three yes, piece. Yes, the, the blue uh, blazer with the, the three piece suit look.
2: Yes, this, this is the brand. This is the new brand. That's the new brand. This yes. is y'all's new brand.
3: Yes. this is the, this where is this the icon edition brand. brand. We're rebranding. It's called. It's called rebrand. Yeah. So, you know, this this is it's a it's a very uh full circle moment for us because I think probably three, maybe four years ago, right? So a lot of this started for us on social media, mm-hmm. on Instagram. And um I used to write a lot, like yeah. write like blogs, but I, I put it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I would write about a whole bunch of different topics. And one of the topics that I wrote about was you. Wow. You had a art you had a cover of Forbes mm-hmm. and um in my year, like three or four years ago, so I uh, I put the cover up and then I wrote like a three page, three paragraph um description of the whole situation. And then my whole point of it was at that time specifically, I didn't feel that enough people knew who you were. I remember, I remember that. You remember it? I remember that. So one of my crazy. guys sent that to me, yeah. He said, Oh, you got to meet this cat. <laughs> oh, yeah, crazy. I remember that. <laughs> that's, so, crazy. that's so funny. That's crazy. So, yeah. so you know, I was real passionate, and I, I kind of was like. You know, we put too much emphasis on sports and entertainment mm-hmm, and we know mm-hmm. him, but this is the most wealthiest black person in american history and a lot of people don't know who he is so long story short fast forward now i think a lot of people do know especially after the morehouse situation we'll mm-hmm. talk about that but um still and still yeah, <laughs> and still the wealthiest black person in america
0: Four years uh, ago was true. Four years later, still yes. true.
3: <laughs> and still. <laughs> that's, that's an accomplishment. Um, and not through sports or entertainment. I think that that's something that's extremely important, especially for young people to understand that you know you can reach levels of success yes. in our culture and our communities and not necessarily do it through sports and entertainment.
0: I think that was one of the pillars that we, when we started was like, let's show everybody what they can be, the possibilities and the yeah. realms of things they can be outside of those two things, which we knew that we could be great at, but let's show him somebody who's doing something that's far beyond that and is succeeding at a different level as well. So definitely one of the pillars of of Earn Your Leisure.
3: Yeah, so Robert Smith, um, CEO and founder of Vista Equity Fund. he is actually a very prolific person because if you read his bio it's like forty five different things <laughs> He's a chairman of Carnegie Hall yes he's uh a family man yeah that's absolutely. that's probably the most that's what I should have said first um he used to he used to do a variety of different things so he used to be an engineer and then he used to actually work on the corporate side for financing as well so mm-hmm. it's an extremely impressive background because most engineers that that doesn't usually mix that's like you know what I'm saying? A weird combination. Sweet. That
0: transition is Yeah. Epic. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, Wall Street and engineers like at the same time. Yeah. He could build your house and give you financing yeah. for it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little it's a little closer than you think, and we'll unpack
2: some of that. Yes. Okay.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is gonna be a very dynamic conversation, something that, you know, extremely excited about. And I gotta tell this story. I told this story in LA, but mm-hmm. this is something that I think is very important to tell because the first time that we met him was in Harlem. Yes. And uh, shout out to our guy, Steve Harvey. Yes. Um, So he invited us, and you were doing something for colon cancer, I believe. Yeah, prostate Prostate cancer. Prostate 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 cancer cancer.
2: for African-American men. Prostate cancer.
3: So it was something that, you know, I always remember that moment because it was in the projects in Wagner Projects Mm -hmm. in Harlem, and um, that's where he chose to actually do that and educate, and he brought a bunch of celebrities out, and that was something that was very impressive to me because it wasn't on Wall Street. It wasn't, you know, in Times Square. It was, you could tell that it was really for the community. Mm-hmm. And it was really a community-based initiative. And we'll talk about that as well. And um when we met him, you know, we obviously are introducing ourselves. And the first <laughs> thing he said to us is, I love you guys.
0: So I don't even think we got to say who we were. Yeah. And it was like,
3: yeah, I love these guys. Are you I kidding not yeah, I love yeah. I love yeah. them. So his his humility uh was infectious and still yeah. is. And, um, you know, his charitable arms are just a million miles long, so yes. I wanted the public to know that because a lot of times people don't know different things that happen, mm-hmm. and it's not for you to say that, but it is for us to champion that yeah. and that's you. that's yeah. important, so yeah. well that's
2: of- important of media and us telling our own story so you 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 play a very important role and part in our community. It's not just the education of our community about our community but helping us understand how to uplift each other and, you know, our community gets attacked from all sides for multiple reasons. Uh, but it has to be, it has to come down to our our community, defending our community in that context. And you guys play a very important role and as dynamic as the media is today, your role is even more important. So keep doing what you're doing
0: and keep leaning in hard. Thank you. Thank you. So Uh, that was an amazing moment. (laughs) Thank you for joining us.
3: Um, okay. We can get to it. So you grew up in Denver. Yeah. In a very diverse neighborhood. Is they call it the Harlem of the West? Is that what they Yeah, the Five Points, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, we as African Americans
2: have had just a interesting journey. And, you know, in, in points in time, you can kind of frame where different things happened uh, uh to our community and you know, things that we did of our community. And the thing I always point to is our not only resilience, but the ability to create and create things new and influence and change. I mean, a lot of American culture is coming out of our experiences and music, of course, is one of the principal drivers, uh, of that. You know, I always say i grew up in a beloved community and, you know, it sounds like you guys grew up in that as well, a place where, uh, in my case it was completely segregated community. But, you know, the needs of the children in that community were being satisfied by the adults in that community. Because, you know, those needs of love and guidance and instruction uh, and everything from learning how to play the piano to learning about science and in my case, like rocketry and in learning sports. I mean, that came from the members of our community. Uh, but you also saw the adults in that community defend the community and also try to make more progress. And the five points area is the area, one of the first areas that was settled by African Americans in Colorado. As we moved across this country and typically it was, you know, at the end of, you know, the emancipation, uh, 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 period. Um, my family, many of them went into Pueblo, Colorado, but they came from, you know, Oklahoma or Tennessee. Right. And you guys are all familiar with Greenwood. Mm-hmm. And part of our family tree comes out of there. Some of them actually owned the, you know, one of the pool halls and one of, the, one of the hardware stores. And as that happened in the early 1900s and that massacre, they moved into Pueblo, Colorado. And then from there, so I'm fourth generation from Colorado. Mm-hmm. And so my family are families of teachers and educators and nurses and doctors. Think about that, right? You know, providing, I'm the fourth generation of my family to go to college. Wow. Right. There's very few families in America where it's four generations that have, that have gone to college. And so what I saw growing up was a community that had a lot of wholeness, but was again, being attacked on many sides. But I saw the adults, like my parents, my father and my mother, you know, pull together organizations to not just defend, to defend, but to advance. And one of the most important areas of advancement was of course, education, you know, being Educated, it was critically important to success and to creating, you know, financial opportunity and to frankly create, you know, stability in the, in the community. Both of my parents were teachers, uh, elementary school teachers. They both ultimately ended up getting doctorates in education, both ended up being principals, but I look. Also to the work they did civically in our in our in our family back then it snowed a lot in Denver you know it's a whole climate change dynamic I don't think we're re- addressing it this, this <laughs> well, we can do that another day <laughs> um, and so we as kids always got excited about snow days right man stay home our parents didn't why because at that time our neighborhood wouldn't get the snowplow to come through for three or four days after it snowed now you think about it we're your parents are trying to go to work, but they can't even get down the street. They can't get to the bus stop. They can't, you know, for those of us who had cars, you couldn't even drive because it was just snowed in. So I saw my father lead an effort and he created a civic association and they literally went and campaigned and lobbied so that we at least got snow plows the same day as other communities in our, you know, in our city. I remember, and then they'd put one stripe, they'd come down and do one stripe down the main street, and then you still had to get to the main street, and you would get out. And then, okay, great, we got on a bus to go across town because they were desegregating schools using busing, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, And you'd go to the neighborhood where the better resource school, and their streets were clean and dry, Mm -hmm. snow piled up on the side or gone, and ours still had just one strip down the center. So when you talk about economic disadvantage, uh, uh, systemic economic oppression. These these are the things that you don't think about on the one hand. But if your community can't get to work, it has a major impact. And we had a lot of wage workers, mm-hmm. so it wasn't like oh everybody was on salary. You were wage workers. If you didn't show up that day, you didn't get paid that day. If you didn't get paid that day, you were now trying to figure out how to you know make groceries and pay pay you know ensure that your kids ate or clothed and those sort of things. And I saw the community say this, when that's not gonna stand, right? And make take a stand of that. I saw my father also pull together uh, resources so our local YMCA, our kids had a chance to go to summer camps and to go into the mountains. And we raised money to build a gym so we could actually have a place, you know, where our kids could actually, you know, recreate in peace and also with facilities. But it was them taking that on and making a community project and us, you know, going out and selling candy and all that, you know, to to ensure that that happened. And it was, I call it a a spirit of self determination that very much was part of the fabric of that community. And you saw people looking out for the kids. Look, that wasn't perfect. Like everything, you know, nothing is perfect, Mm -hmm. but you felt loved. Uh, you felt cared for, you felt protected, and you saw adults coming together for the betterment of that community, not episodically when something bad happened, but on a regular basis. And that's what I remember. And those are the things that really inform how I like to live my life. And I have an opportunity to do a little bigger platform than growing up there. Um, and But it's also, I call it rich with community life you know, the music, the, you know, we'd have the fi- Friday night fish fries. And you guys too young, remember, we used to do these people take slides, pictures on slides and you have a slide projector. <laughs> oh. You guys
0: are left You don't even know I, about. I, I know I I know. I know. I feel yeah. like that happened in elementary school. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. You put yeah. the slide on projector. Yeah. 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 Well,
2: yeah, but, but, but people would go to people's homes and, you know, bring food and potlucks and watch slide projectors of people's, what they did that summer. Mm. And and then of course play cards and you know you know drink whiskey and soda pop and all but and play music and I mean that's it was very vibrant and I just remember that and that wasn't like like I said episodic that was kind of just the way we lived so yeah. it was actually it was actually pretty cool
0: it, it sounds like I mean just having the foundation set like you said most of us don't come from you know families that went to college you had two educators in the home. You spoke about the impact your dad had i i remember hearing the stories about the impact that your mom oh, writing yeah. the, the checks to right. the united negro college fund and what that profound impact had on you i want to talk about that a little bit and, sure. and bus 13 like you kind of alluded yeah. to him, but yeah the importance of that and how you know having one bus in the community and the impact that that had on you and also the future of some of the people that were on that bus and right. and, and how you know they excelled as opposed to the people that didn't make it can you talk about that
2: yeah and it's you know again it's kind of the 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 great segue into you know the importance of resources uh in a community and the importance of uh guidance in that context you know we we were at a time it was a dawning of uh call it the civil rights movement uh in action so you know there were there were you know we spilled a lot of blood and the, a lot of our blood was spilled in the streets And one of the things we got out of it was Brown versus Board of Education. And now it's like, okay, now we're going to desegregate schools. How are you going to do that when everybody lives in segregated neighborhoods? So it was in Denver and many other places. It was a thing called busing, right? They call it forced busing, but it was busing. And so now, you know, the cities took years. They, you know, bought a bunch of buses, started figuring out, okay, who from this community who goes to this local school. My dad was a principal at the local school. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to be bussed across town to another school. All right. Well, um, right before this was to happen, some racists didn't think this was a good idea and burned like a third of the buses.
0: Ernest, what's up? Look, Cartier, Rolex, Gucci, Prada, Jordan, Adidas, Bottega, Veneta at eBay. It's real. Or it's getting the fake out. eBay's team of luxury authenticators are making sure you never get faked over again watches inspected by watch aficionados, sneakers checked by legit sneakerheads, handbags examined by handbag connoisseurs, and jewelry in the scopes of expert gemologists. These authenticators are leaders in their field with meticulous eyes making sure your piece arrives as authentic as your style and worthy of your collection. As experts, they know the true difference between a real and a fake. Real carries that rare, distinguished feel, the weight of pure platinum, exquisite scent of togo leather, the tight stitching on a pair of dunks, the brilliance of real diamonds. So rest assured, your Rolex moves like a Rolex should. And that colorway on your Jordan Royals will always be on point. The details inspected, the fakes rejected. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay's authenticity guarantee. Everyone deserves real. Visit ebay.com for terms.
2: Okay, so now, all of a sudden, fewer people are going to get bust, just as of nature. So rather than my whole neighborhood getting bussed, only one bus came to my neighborhood. And so it just so happened to hit on a, on a corner down the block from me. And so the kids in that four block radius were the first ones to go to desegregated schools, okay? And like I talked about better resource schools. And when I look at the kids who were on that bus versus the kids who were two blocks away, okay? It was bus number 13, like I say ironically, mm-hmm. right? It was those kids have a higher percentage of professionals, went to Ivy League schools, became, you know, doctors and professors and scientists versus blocks, just a few blocks away, a much, now there were some professionals that came out of there, but a much lower percentage. I mean, it is a stark contrast. And it's because that K, in that case, K through six education, was so different than what you saw in our local neighborhoods because you know, they were still, mm-hmm. you know, separate but equal, but it wasn't. You, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. The teaching, the capacity, the care, and, you know, and we had some phenomenal teachers uh, in, in our community, and some of the teachers through that also ended up in those better resource schools because it was that as well. And I remember Mrs. Olivier, third grade teacher, African-American woman, and you could, only African-American teacher in that school, but she looked out for every kid of color in that school. And I'm telling you, that's, that's one of the most important things that made a huge difference in our educational upbringing and gave us a chance to launch and go into the high schools and go into the colleges that we ended up in because we had great fundamental education K through six.
3: So I want to get into how you've actually built what you have acquired. But I want to start with your engineering career. So you was at Kraft, and you were at Goodyear as an engineer. Yeah. And then you transitioned to Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. So, can you talk about that? Like, how did that? How did you go from being an engineer from Kraft and Goodman and Goodyear to being in in the investment banking world for Goldman Sachs?
2: Yeah. And I'm going to point to the importance of media. Okay. So I will get into later, kind of what Vista is and how the engineering informs all that we do and has created the enterprise that it is that can grow at scale sustainably because of the engineering background mindset and design points. But the transition came from media. Okay. So at the time I was an engineer working at a plant in upstate New York uh, for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Facility um, and I had a, a, a collection of friends and we would get together, we we'd read. I mean, like not a kid. we weren't just sitting there watching football because you know, we had a book club. A bunch of African Americans, you know, we had a book club back then reading different things. And one of the guys brought to kind of the book club uh a black enterprise magazine. And on that were a bunch of blacks on Wall Street. Uh, first, I'm like, well, what is Wall Street? Because I, I had <laughs> no idea what Wall Street was. And they had all these guys on Wall Street, and it had, you know, this guy, you know, John Newtendall, this guy, you know, Ray McGuire and Stan O'Neill and George Van Ansem. And, and I'm like, well, who are these cats? And what's this Wall Street all about? And why are they on the cover of this magazine, right? What's that? And so we start reading and understanding and talking about it. I mean, that's the importance of community, too, where you can kind of bounce some ideas off, and what, what's this all about? And started really understanding that there was a whole different world outside of engineering, which is what I thought the world was, right? Um, and so I started thinking about, well, maybe I should go to graduate school. <laughs> so as I started looking at different you know, elements, business school looked interesting, law school looked interesting, uh, and I decided, well, I'm gonna go to Columbia. I went to Cornell undergrad. Um, and I started looking around and, and decided Columbia was a good place for me to go. I was fortunate to get in. Uh, and also I also had the good fortune. I did well my first year. So I was a top student in my class. I, I had to come back for a, an award, right? For the after, you know, business school is two years. So after the first year, I had to come back with this award during the summer, you know, the summer graduation. Uh, so I come back. And lo and behold, one of those guys from the magazine is actually the keynote speaker for the summer graduates. God, named name of John Utendahl. And, you know, they go and give my background and all that sort of stuff and, you know, my award, I get that. And at the end of the, the, the thing, you know, he gives his speech. He pulls me up and says, hey, hey, hey. He said, you have an interesting background, you know, engineer, all that. So he said, have you ever thought about a career in investment banking? I'm like, well. I said, you know, there's a bunch of investment bankers in my class. I don't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he says, well, he looks at me. He's like, well, why not? I said, well, I, they think they know everything and they're pretty arrogant. I said, I'm an engineer. We do know everything. It bothers us, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought I was a jokester then. But uh, And I said, in all honesty, I said, I don't really know what y'all do. And he said, well, why don't you come have lunch with me? I said, sure. And being in Columbia, the, one of the, advantages of being at Columbia Business School is you're, you know, a subway ride away from Wall Street. So I go down and sit with, with John and I'm expecting, you know, half hour, 45 minutes. This guy's not going to give me any time. And we just start talking. He's asking me my experiences. I'm telling him all the stuff I was inventing and doing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I guess he thought I was entertaining. But um, at the end of it, he said, let me introduce you to some people. And he picks up the phone and he calls, you know, Ray McGuire. He picks up and he calls, you know, George Van Ansem. He picks up the phone, he calls, you know, Stan O'Neill. He's like, hey, there's a guy in my office, really interesting background. You guys ought to interview him and talk to him about a career in investment banking. And so, you know, as a scientist, what, what you do is you analyze data and try to come to some conclusion and then act upon it with, with, with some activity. Uh, so now I'm entering my fall of my second year of business school and I'm trying to understand what this investment banking thing is all about. Sure. I'm taking classes in finance and marketing and doing well, obviously, you know, in statistics and accounting, but I didn't understand the industry and the business of it. And these brothers all brought me in and had conversations with me and introduced me throughout the organization. I ended up having over a hundred interviews with People on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, you know, Morgan Stanley, you know, what's called a place called Bankers Trust at the time, J.P. Morgan. And through that, I said, wow, the business that I really like is mergers and acquisitions. Right? Okay, because if you think about M&A, it's board-level discussions, it's CEO-level discussions, and it's how assets move across this planet, right? Yeah. So I said, well, that looks really interesting to me. And this is another one of those life lessons. This is something you don't learn in school. It's an apprenticeship business. Someone has to decide that they're going to make you an apprentice in the M&A business and teach and train you how to do this. You can read all the books in the world, but you actually have to practice it. Okay, You actually have to develop a set of skills that have to be honed through a set of interactions that create fact patterns that you can rely on to make judgments going forward. And so from that, I said, at the time, there are only really maybe four principal M&A shops, Goldman being one, that I thought actually that you can get better training there than anywhere else. And Goldman at the time had really prided itself on this teamwork dynamic. And some of these other firms, at the time, if you worked for a partner in M&A, that's the partner you worked for for the next four, five, six years. And if you were favored, then you'd do great. And if you were not, it'd be tough sledding, mm-hmm. right? And you look in those departments, there are very few people who look like y'all. And me. And so, I, well, will I get that experience? And while Goldman was not perfect, like no place is, you would work for multiple partners. So you work on a deal with this partner and a deal on this partner at the same time. So six, seven deals, you'd have six, seven different partners or vice presidents that you worked for. And so there you had a chance to what I call build your fact pattern of experiences through the lens of different practitioners. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would actually enhance my ability to be expert at that craft. So that's why I went to Goldman Sachs. So I
0: I want to talk about that because at that time, I mean, you you have the background chemical engineering, you've been creating, you've been inventing. What is that like now? Because at the time, if I read it correctly, you're the the guy that's focusing solely on technology because you you can see it. This is going to be the thing that changes the future. So you're seeing Apple and you're seeing Microsoft and you're seeing eBay and Yahoo, all these things before they started. What was that like trying to explain to the investment, the banking side, like, hey, guys, this is my expertise. You guys should trust me on this. This well, is going to be the thing. So
2: that's interesting. So when I started uh you know I, I was in New York and i had every i've had I had baby food businesses, I had paper companies, all these sort of things, and it's the dawning of introducing technology into the industrial environment, okay, so you guys you know back in the day and let's we, let's unpack this. this is actually pretty interesting yeah. Back in the day when I was at Goodyear or Kraft, um, very few companies then were actually, you know, in wealth. They wanted to, but they didn't necessarily have the investment resources to implement computing capacity into the environment. So you guys, you guys are digital natives. <laughs> yes. Okay. My generation are digital immigrants. And so at the time, if you wanted to use the computer, it was like $1,000 for a half hour of computer use. You would have to sign up for it. And you could go use it and there'd be somebody standing behind you waiting for your 30 minutes to come up and then they'd come on and you would have to go sign up again to use a computer because it was that scarce mm. of a resource. And so one of my early projects, for instance, I was working and uh, in, in running a plant in, 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 you know, Niagara Falls, New York. And I was responsible for implementing some computer systems and computer control systems. So the way systems work before that were analog and they were individual. So what would happen is you know you're going to run a process and you're going to charge the reactor with, you know, the with the reagents, with the catalyst and you kind of, you know, put the steam on and stir it and then the reaction would kind of take off, right? And depending upon the rates of change and all that, you sometimes need to cool it or heat it up so there'd be what I call there would be an, you know, a an episodic observation of the event and then you'd have an episodic you know, intervention. So you change something and it would change the control dynamic. And like I say, if you weren't, if the controller operator wasn't at lunch or, you know, talking about football or whatever it is, every dynamic was different because it wasn't consistent because you had that human engagement as the actual control system. Well, if you put a computer system in, it's measuring those observations thousands of times a second. Mm And you could also then put in systems of control where you could have interventions thousands of times a second. So you went from control dynamics that look like this to control dynamics that look like this. And for you mathematicians, everything under the curve is waste, right? So now you look at that and like, so in first implementation I did of that at the plant, increase the productivity of that plant by 26%. Okay, that's a whole shift a day by putting a control system. So now you understand the power and the productivity that software actually brings to a plant. Now take that and put it in an office. Managing an insurance claim, okay? You're an insurance adjuster, you know, my, my car is wrecked. Back in the day, you'd have to go to a place and they kind of take pictures of it, and write it up, put it in an envelope, send it to somebody in the home office. And maybe you were on vacation, sit on that desk for a week, maybe got to the right person and you said, oh, well, you know, you didn't do something right. So you got to send it back to you and get, ask some more questions. And that happened back and forth. And from that, you'd adjust it and say, OK, here's here's how much the you know, approximate value is. You send me a check. I get mad because it wasn't enough to fix the car. And that was a whole process how things now introduce a computer in that environment.
0: Earn Your Leisure is supported by First Republic Bank. Have you ever experienced a relationship with a banker who was available to answer all your questions, even by phone or email doesn't exist. You say it does at first Republic at first Republic. Everyone gets a personal banker. Who's ready to sit down and answer your questions no matter how complex. And did you know that first Republic's commitment to extraordinary service extends beyond its clients? First Republic is committed to strengthening the communities it serves through meaningful partnerships with innovative nonprofit organizations to learn more visit firstrepublic.com. That's firstrepublic.com. Remember, FDIC, equal housing lender.
2: Where through the adjustment process, in some respects, you have an adjuster who's actually looking at it and filling it out, but now you can actually take your phone and take a picture of it, and based on the, the make of the car, estimate exactly how many hours it's going to take, what's the bill of materials, what's the cost. And so the efficiency from an insurance product went like this to now to that. OK, that hit every single industry. That's what we're doing right now.
1: Mm.
2: So software is now the most productive tool introduced in our business environment in the last 50 years and likely it will be for the next 50. So now I go to Goldman Sachs. They're now in the process of, you know, we're, we're using different spreadsheet programs. You guys remember because you've used Excel all your life, haven't you? You've been paying Microsoft
4: <laughs> 30
2: years for a project, for a product that you use. Back in the day, there were five or six others. There one called Lotus, It was Multiplan, there was Visical, Asterix, a bunch of different. And so there was always a fight as to which one of these programs you would use. But once you consolidated on one, the efficiency of not having to move you know, my project, which I did in Lotus, to yours, which I did in Excel because we're working on a team together, that's another efficiency that came out of the system by consolidating so I'm now at Goldman. I'm now working on a bunch of different M and A deals, and started to see what I'll call the recognition of efficiency that can come from consolidation on platforms. One of which we would compare these, put these things together called common stock comparisons, where you get up in the morning and you'd have to put together 45 different stock comparisons for work that you're doing, and you're sitting across the aisle working on, or, you know, down the hall, working on something similar, and you're doing the exact same work he's doing. You just don't know that you're doing it. And you're both, you see all the inefficiency, whereas now once you have done that, how do I share it with you? And how do you, you know, you can do this part, and do that part, it makes it much more efficient. Well, computer systems do that. So now we're getting more efficient in how we're processing deals and applications in all industries. And so now it's the dawning of what is, technology being mainstream staying real so the head of our department calls and he's like i think i want to start a tech group he's like would you like to be part of that i said yeah so where is it we're gonna do this in california he wanted to do it in la i said no let's do it in san francisco he lived in la mm. and i'm like well san francisco's kind of you know silicon valley all that sort of stuff i said that's where i go so we agreed, and I was our first M&A banker on the ground, focused on technology for Goldman Sachs in San Francisco. Okay? And so from there, I advised, you know, like I say, build companies like Apple Computer and Texas Instruments and Hewlett-Packard and eBay and Yahoo. And what was amazing to me, because again, it's a dawning of an industry, is how they all did things differently. In the world of a chemical engineer, if you went into almost any production facility where they're, you know, an ortho cracker where they're, they're taking oil and making different types of fuel and gas, they're all pretty much the same because over years they figured out what's the most efficient way to do it. But that's not how the software industry was. Everybody did it differently their go to market, their product development, okay, because it was new. And so, the whole idea ultimately behind Vista is how do I take the best practices from software companies that I have experience with and deliver those to other software companies so that the efficiency now comes out of that system and eliminate all that waste, right? That's what Vista is. It's a system. It's an engineered system. So, My going out to Silicon Valley, like all things in life, you got to look at what informs you and what creates the basis for the activities or the actions you now bring forward into your work product. And that's what it is, is. How do you bring engineering efficiency to the management and operations of software companies? So that's the narrative. And that's what my actions have been against from a VISTA perspective.
3: So let's get into this conversation, private equity, VISTA. Sure is which the company that you started 20 years ago, I believe. And um, it has obviously made you a billionaire and you know, extremely successful person. But can you talk about, well, a lot of people don't even know what private equity is. Sure. They might have, I think people are familiar with venture capital at this point because that's really trendy. Um, but can you talk about what private equity is and the difference between that and venture capital?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a great question because our community, it's important our community understand the role of capital in growth. And there's different providers of capital along different stages of a company. Okay. Um, One of the best ways to think about it is if you all have an idea, which you have, we're going to create a platform to educate our people. You're going to start off first with the idea of labor. You (laughs) too. Right? And we've got ideas. We're going to write them down. We're going to put a process together to now communicate those ideas great and so you start off on social media because it's free and i say well how do i now push this out more broadly speaking beyond trying to get followers and you may say maybe i should buy some advertising where am i going to get this money okay the vast majority of investment capital even today is still out of the debt markets so Unfortunately, 70% of our communities don't actually have a branch bank. So depending upon where you live, there's no bank that you have a banking relationship with. You can go and say, hey, I need $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 because look at how, you know, and they don't understand your business. I've got 840,000 followers. And if I had $20,000, I could rent a studio, okay, five times a month and get a million followers or 2 million followers. And by having two million followers, I can go get advertisers who will pay me to have access to, you know, my my my, my, my people, right? And if they pay me, I can now pay you back that money. And then I can invest it in more in my business and make it grow. That's the capital cycle. And it's a virtuous one. But our community hasn't had access to capital. The next phase of that is like some of the banks are like, well. There's no hard assets because your hard assets are your hard work. So I'm not going to lend you any money. I'm not sure you're credit worthy. So you can't come to me. So enter the venture capitalists. The venture capitalists are designed to actually look at what it is you're doing in the markets that you participate in. And if you have more capital, and in some cases, know-how and resources that they can hopefully bring to you, because they've done this once or twice or a hundred times in that industry, they can show you, yeah, take that $10,000, okay? Don't buy advertising, but what I want you to do is actually build a platform where you can do your own streaming. It's more efficient long-term and you make more money long-term. And so that's advice you might get from them, and here's $10,000. Now, they're not gonna necessarily ask for an interest rate like the bank, paying you know, four, five, six, eight, 10 now, 12%, right, uh, in, in interest, they're going to ask you for a percentage of the company. And they say, and when you sell the company, you're not going to own 100%. You're going to own 100% minus how much they bought. That's venture capital, okay? Now, years later, you're now running a big platform. you got 20 million followers. You've got advertisers making $18, 15000000 million a month in advertising revenues, and what you're not spending on your team and crew because you're going to give them all raises because they're phenomenal. You guys should, I'm giving a shout out to you. <laughs> so y'all should be thanking No, 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 Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. Um, uh, but don't be too greedy, no. Um, uh, but now you're at the point where you're making, you know, 10, 30, 40, 50 million dollars in revenues and now you're trying to manage your business, how profitable and expenses and all that. And that's where private equity comes in. Private equity typically are larger checks and we typically bring, in my case, we do buyouts. We want to do control investments where you are selling control of your business. And you may say, well, why am I selling control of my business? A, you know, get the money. But B, what you really want is my know-how. Why do founders come to us? Because we've done it so many times in enterprise software. I can bring, remember those best practices I was telling you? Here's how you run your product development organization more efficiently. Here's how you run your go-to-market system more efficiently. Here's how you do your contract administration more efficiently. Because you've never done that before, or you've done it, but you don't necessarily know the best way to do it. And we can share experiences with you that actually can enable you to do it. Now, not all private equity people bring that. Some just bring the capital. And they say, I just want to own the business. Because if I buy the business and it's growing well, over time, and they may put debt on the business, they're going to increase the value of that business. And then when they sell it, they make the difference between where they sold it and what they bought it for minus the debt that was in the company. So the way to think about that is think about buying a house. If you go and it's a house worth $100,000, I know you guys talk about this in your show. And a buyout person can come and say, all right, I'm going to buy it for $100,000. Okay? But then they go to the bank and they borrow $60,000. So they only have to put $40,000 in. But because it's in a good neighborhood, five years later, it's now worth $200,000, $300,000, whatever it might be, right? Or they, or they fixed up the house. They went in, put a new porch, and put 40000 in to really improve the value of the house. Now I can sell it for 300000 they sell it for three hundred. They pay back the sixty thousand to the bank. They've been paying interest along the way, right? And that difference—they put in forty. The difference is what is profit, and that's what private equity firms do. Okay, as an owner of private equity firm, that difference in value—if I borrowed the money or raised the money—I've got to pay my investors back, and then I get a percentage of the profits. So that's how that works. So it's it's, just a different
3: form of capital. So you're just buying companies as opposed to where venture capital, they're investing in companies, but the owner still runs it. You're actually taking control and ownership of the company. Yes, but like 90% of the founders that we buy our
2: companies from are still involved in the business with us or in our ecosystem. Okay. And so you're taking control But you're also investing in the infrastructure. And I like to use words, you're accelerating the corporate maturity of that business. So Mm -hmm. it might take you 10 years to figure out what we've done 45 times already. Right. And now I bring that intellectual property into the company and say, here's how we're going to design this a little differently. Here's how we're going to change your compensation plans for your salespeople to actually incentivize them to give you more stable revenues. Or, 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 you know, more visibility into the future revenues and earnings of that business that you may not have figured out or may not figure out because you may not be in an environment, a circle of people who have dealt with that before. And so that's why the expertise that we bring is often more valuable than the capital.
0: Yeah, it feels like the, the highest level of mentorship slash internship where it's yeah. like you're, you're giving it to me because you've already been through it.
2: Right. And we create an ecosystem where our founders are, we intentionally bring them together. Our CEOs, we have 26 events this year. Okay. We've got 86 software companies today. We've got 95,000 employees. But we have an event, you know, last one, our CXO event, I had 450 CXOs. So that's, you know, CEOs, chief financial officers, chief marketing officers, you know, CISOs, all that in one city. For three days, in that case, going through seven or eight different tracks. So if you're a CFO of a $40 million software company, you're sitting next to a CFO of a $400 million software company sitting next to a CFO of a $3 billion software company. You all are dealing with different things on the one hand, but you want to understand what you need to do to build your organization so you can support $400 million worth of growth. And you want to understand what you need to do in your organization at $400 million so you can support a $3 billion. You're not going to get that anywhere else but at Vista. You you see what I mean? Oh, and by the way, we do that for the product and technology groups as well. And we do it for separately. And we'll do it for our talent organizations, talent development. And we'll do it for go-to-market. You you see what I mean? All of those are elements that are value-add, intellectual property, best practices that we now share with a community of founders and executives in all of our portfolio companies. So it gets back into that efficacy, that efficiency i talked about in engineering. Yeah. Now, I could hope that you could figure this out. I can invest in your company and hope you figure it out. And if you don't, I'll fire you. But we don't take that approach. We say, let me give you tools and systems and let me actually equip your management team with tools and systems, so they have a higher probability of being successful, as opposed to, let me just hope you get it right, or you figure it out. You see what I mean? That's the difference in how we approach the market, and that's in some cases the difference between, I'll call it, highly skilled, tuned investors, either private equity or venture capital, and those who are just providing access to capital.
0: One of the things you were talking to us about was knowing value and worth. And as I'm listening to you talking about the stories of creating efficient systems for other companies, at what point, or was it always that entrepreneurial mindset where, like, I'm doing this for them, I need to start doing this for myself. Was that always in in the mindset, or did that develop as you created more efficient systems and said, wait, I'm saving them this, I'm saving them this, maybe I can create this for myself?
2: Yeah. It's a great question, because, like, all things in my life, it's evolution. You know, my parents were school teachers. I didn't have private equity people in my life, bankers in my life, lawyers in my life. So you're learning along the way, and you hope that you can glean and learn and understand uh, insights that can be helpful to you going forward. One of the key insights, we talked about this a little earlier, uh, that I had, I got as an engineer. Okay, so I was working for a company, it was actually a company called Craft Foods, and um, in that case, I was responsible for changing and hopefully enhancing one of our best products which was a company called Maxwell House, which is coffee, right? And coffee, blended coffee, is made up of different forms of coffee. We talked about, you know, Arabica's or Buses. there may be five or six different types of coffee roasted to a certain amount ground to a certain amount that that give you a flavor profile that you want to be consistent everywhere you go in the world. So no matter where you went, it tastes the same. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is back in the day when Maxwell House was the largest coffee distributor on the planet. Okay. Well, one of my projects was to. Uh, figure out a way to, in essence, enhance the flavor profile at a lower cost. And I did that, and I'll spare you all the details. I told you, you guys some of the details, but yeah, yeah. so your audience didn't know all that nerdy stuff. But, uh, and in doing that, I was able to save the company 14 cents a pound on every pound of coffee that we manufactured. And we were manufacturing tens of millions of pounds a month of coffee. Okay. And I told you guys that I chuckled because I got a great little plaque
0: out of it. They gave me a $1,000 <laughs> and
2: an award, and that was wonderful. And I started to understand
0: that. Ernest, check this out. If you're looking to add to your podcast list, I got one you definitely need to check out. The new Audible original, Direct Deposit, What Happens When Black People Get Rich. Hosted by Chad Sanders, the author of Black Magic, What Black Leaders Learn from Trauma and Triumph. And TV writer of Rap Shit. Direct Deposit explores what it takes to get rich and stay rich while black in America. For all my young black entrepreneurs, you must tap in. Direct Deposit seeks to answer the questions, what's money going to do for me? What's money going to do to me? It's quite a dilemma. Chad went from sleeping on a mattress on the floor in his cramped apartment to nearly overnight success after the legendary Spike Lee signed on to develop one of his scripts. After becoming more and more successful, Chad has realized that his bank account might change But the struggle remains. Chad speaks to prominent black figures in American pop culture like Issa Rae, Gabrielle Union and Soledad O'Brien. Visit audible.com slash direct deposit to listen now.
2: Look, I could have never done that if I weren't in that environment. I could have never done that had I not been a chemical engineer from Cornell. Okay, but I was graced with both of those scenarios. And I was able to create something of real value for the company at the time. But then you start looking at the give-get analysis. They're saving, you know, 10, 12, 14 million dollars a year. And, you know, I got paid the same 34000 dollars a year, whatever it was at the time, which I thought was more money than you could ever make, because that was more money my dad ever made in his career, okay, as a principal. Right. And so then you start thinking about, is there a different utility of my time that I should be thinking about? Um and ultimately, what I actually realized and you know, we chat about this a little earlier, through my interactions with, with, with John Utendahl and Ray McGuire and these sort of folks, the power of capital versus labor. And we just talked about labor, and you all's labor to create this platform. At some point you realize, if I had a different quantum of capital, you could reach more people on accident than you do through flying around and doing events. If you utilize that capital efficiently, you, you see what I mean. And so that's kind of the next evolution. Work in- smarter, not harder. Yeah, right. Okay, and in some cases you learn it. In some cases someone tells you right. And in some ca- and and if you get it right, you then can do it at increasing scale and efficiency and. We call it the unit economics of your productivity go up with every time you do it as opposed to down, right? So those are the dynamics that informed me on understanding capital. And one of the things we talked about, you know, capital markets are just basically equilibrium systems. That's what we learn in chemical engineering is understanding equilibrium systems. It's actually the same thing in some respects. You've got a different set of inputs and outputs, but what is the equilibrium system that you're actually evaluating and understanding, and in some cases, changing the dynamic of, the control in those equilibrium systems to make a more efficient outcome? So they're not as far apart as you think if you look at it through the right lens.
3: Well, Let me ask you this as far as I want to make sure I get this number correct. Well, first, your guy's portfolio consists of $94 $94 billion, $94 billion in assets. Yeah, a little more than that, but yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> Who's counting? <laughs> yeah, um, me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is a disturbing fact. So 1.4% yeah. of U.S.-based assets under management managers uh, are for diverse-owned firms. Women and people of color combined. Right. One, so That is disturbing. So yeah, talk, so that's 1.4% of the firms are women and just like everybody, like Latinos, Blacks, like you just throw yeah. everybody in a bucket. Yeah, and we, and we
2: only have access to 1.4% of the assets. Mm. We make up a little more than 1.4% of the population though, don't we? Uh, and we actually make up a little higher than that in terms of our contributing to the pension plans. Did your parents, are they part of a pension plan?
3: Yeah, my mom my mom's, uh, was a teacher for 30 years, so. Yeah,
2: okay. What's percentage of Black teachers in her union? Probably a lot. A little more than one point four percent. A lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. What about, you know, some of the civil service workers? Yep. Probably the same thing. What about federal government? Yeah. Probably the same thing. But yet we don't control a proportionate share of the assets that our parents put those sixty-two dollars a week in for pensions. And we our parents go out, work so hard, send us to school send us to college, get educated, to go manage this capital. But yet, they don't get the capital to manage. That, as you know, flows back in our communities at much higher rates than almost anything else. Because as you do better, you typically are enhancing your community at much higher rates than non-people of color. So those are the things we, you, and me, have to pick, make people aware and drive these pension plans to make sure they're distributing their fair share to the constituency base that makes up those who are contributing, point number one, and then point number two, to the highest performers, which when you look at, we have a group called the NAIC that's been doing this work for 20 years, evaluating our firms perform at a higher rate A higher level with lower loss ratios. So can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we've been doing this, and we do these studies. We have, over the last 20 years, especially in the private equity business, returned more capital, had fewer losses, lower loss ratios, than majority white firms. But yet, we get less than 1.4% of the allocation of capital. And we've got the studies, and we go take these studies, and we, you know and it goes and shows these consultants, and they're, and they're kind of like, yeah, it's going to take some time. Well, that's a problem. Okay, those are the things that destabilize communities. If they feel there is injustice in the way people are treated, and it's not a meritocracy, that's a dynamic that has to change. And there are certain leaders who are doing a good job of that, you know, somebody criticized, honestly, New York does a pretty good job of it. New York State, New York City, just to call out, we're sitting here now, right? in understanding that, and, you know, comptrollers and treasurers, you know, the Napoli being one and, and Lander being the newest one in New York City, understand that and have been driv- driving the programs in that regard. And that's why some of the, the returns, some of the highest in the U.S., because they recognize that fact. And there's some states that don't recognize and don't do anything about it. And they've got some of the lowest returning plans. You see what I mean? It's economic necessity at the end of the day. And it's fairness that's actually going to move our society forward.
0: Yeah. In in, uh, 2019, I want to talk about this. uh, Obviously, your philanthropic philanthropic efforts have been well-documented, Morehouse. Philanthropic. Philanthropic, I'm sorry. Man, I know I was it's was early. Saying, <laughs> it's early. I was thinking <laughs> philanthropy and philanthropic, yeah. Yeah. so I appreciate you. Uh, Combo. Obviously, Combo word. Well, well documented. Um, they give back to the senior class of Warhouse. Uh, and then I recently you, you know, saw that the parents as well of some of the students, uh, their, their tuitions, well, their student loan debt the Parent was, plus loans. Parent yeah, plus loans, took loans were taken too. care of. Yeah. But one of the things I heard you speak about, and I haven't, I've never heard it, was broadband deserts. Yeah. And how HBCUs are disproportionately affected by having broadband deserts. Not a topic that I, I've, I've heard discussed, you know, nationally or even in, you know, amongst communities about how that affects students long term and how it affects communities in education. Can you talk about your efforts to try to combat that? Yeah,
2: it's a great question. Uh...
0: Ernest, what's up? Today's episode is sponsored by Sunchips Art Scene. Sunchips believes in the power of diverse voices, but many women and people of color aren't always seen in the art industry. Help Sunchips shine a light on underrepresented artists and champion diversity in the art scene by heading to SunchipsArtsCene.com right now. You'll be able to view the art collection on show in Miami Beach and vote for your favorite artist for the chance to win Sunchips Snacks for one year. The top three artists that receive the most votes will be commissioned by Sun Chips to create artwork that will appear on more than 20 million Sun Chips bags and across Sun Chips advertising in 2023. All right, so here's your voting details. Fans across the U.S. can visit sunchipsartscene.com between now and December 18th to view the collection on show in Miami Beach and cast their vote for their favorite art scene artist. Sun Chips will commission the top three artists that receive the most votes to create artwork that will appear on more than 20 million Sun Chips bags and across Sun Chips advertising in 2023. Consumers can vote once per day for the chance to win Sun Chips snacks for one year. There will be one winner each day from now to December 18, 2022. So head over to Sun Chips Art Scene, that's S E E N dot com, right now to cast your votes. Good luck, y'all. We've been
2: talking about what is really the fourth industrial revolution that's occurring today. Every industry is being digitized, every single one. I mean, you just look in our studio here and how much of this equipment is now digital versus what it was even eight years ago, where it was analog, right? The capacity to edit, okay, the capacity to deliver streaming real time you know, phase time around the world, your program. That wasn't, you know, something you could do 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Okay. Digitizing everything, every industry. This is, again, this whole fourth industrial revolution is changing the economic landscape of this planet. But yet our HBCUs, 80% of them are in broadband deserts. How are you gonna participate if you don't have access to the tool of progress, the principal tool of progress today in the economy? And that is a big problem. And that's one that we decided to take on and I decided to take on and bring some partners to take on to go get after this. We have to enable all of our citizenry to participate in this next generation of opportunity. The U.S. today, you all know this. Our borders are basically closed. Okay? You know, we've got immigration laws and political conflict that, in essence, we are not importing labor anymore. And as we need to grow as a society, we need people. I always tell people the biggest issue, the most scarce asset we have on this planet today are software programmers. There's 8 billion people on the planet. There's only 26 million of us who write software for a living. And it is that software that is required to digitize every industry on the planet. Automotive, healthcare, finance, banking. All of it is now requiring tools and systems that are digital in nature. But yet... One of the greatest infrastructures for training people, historically black colleges and universities, 80% of them don't have broadband access, where our kids can learn the tools of this craft in a way that they can participate effectively long term. And if we don't get this right now, eight years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, the market of change and opportunity and transformation will have been gone so far that we won't be able to participate in this next wave. We didn't get to participate in the great economic opportunity that was America in owning land, okay? Many of our families were unpaid labor, okay, which created massive wealth. And then you had GI Bill, Homestead Act, Southern Homestead Act. We didn't participate in that proportionately. We didn't get a chance to participate in the asset accretion in real estate because of redlining and those dynamics. And so now here we are, corporate America started to expand. It has taken a while for us to get, and we're still not even there, fair share of opportunity to participate as professionals environment. And now you're going through the fourth industrial revolution. If we don't participate here, it's gonna be the same dynamic. That's why it's so essential that we equip our children and our communities with the tools, and they need to insist that those tools be provided and insist that they learn and train and develop ways to participate in this economy, in this digital economy. What percentage of your viewership you think is listening on some digital device or digital enablement? 100%?
3: 100%. 100%.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah. Your business relies on it. So why shouldn't your community participate in it? And right now, those, uni- those schools are being starved of those resources. You can say conscious, unconscious, whatever it is, but the fact is it is there. That's what we have to do about it. Look, I'm going to do my part, and you guys got to continue to do your part, and make sure that your viewership demands that our HBCUs have access to broadband. Every one of them, not just the big ones, every one of them, so that our kids could learn and and participate and have the ability to now take what they know and deliver business systems, solutions into their community to make their small and medium businesses in their community and the education of the kids in our community more effective than what it is today.
3: I want to just follow up on that, on the HBCU thing, because... You got a lot of headlines when you, the Morehouse, when you paid off the student loans. But when we were in L.A. and I heard you speak about that, and I realized that it wasn't, it's a little bit more complicated (laughs) than that, which actually (laughs) led to something else, another initiative. So can you talk about that? Because people just saw he paid off everybody's student loan, but that's not actually the full story, right? Yeah. So the next thing, so what
2: I like all things, it's not as easy as you think to pay off somebody's (laughs) loan. (laughs) I know, everybody's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Who would have thought? Because, yeah, (laughs) who would have thought, right? Because if you pay off somebody's loan, either you're giving them a gift or they're receiving a gift, now they got to pay taxes on it, so there's a burden to them or increasing burden to you. So you've got to actually architect a system to do that effectively so that it doesn't create the burden. In that process... What I learned is over 60 percent of African-American wealth goes towards servicing student loans. OK? You come out, you've got 60, 80, 120,000 dollars worth of student loans. Now you're paying interest on those loans. Something happens in your family to lose your job, whatever, now that compounds, and it can be decades before you've paid off those student loans that inhibit your ability to buy stocks, bonds, a house, invest in a business. You see what I mean? And I was like, well, that's just unconscionable. Because most student loans are paying back to the United States government.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. African Americans paying money back to the United States government to pay off student loans. How do y'all feel about
3: that? That was crazy. <laughs> that was <laughs> okay.
2: Crazy. <laughs> All that right? was crazy. Yeah, y'all should think about that, right? Talk about that, right? So... Then I thought, well, what's a better way to do it? I mean, this is What's the better equilibrium system? The better equilibrium system is to create a fund. It's called the Student Freedom Initiative. We raise money. I put in a bunch of money. And now these students borrow from the fund. Okay, let's make sure it fits our condition. Our condition often is that we often aren't paid as much as corresponding white students. So let's make sure that the interest rate is below Parent PLUS loans at a minimum. At a minimum. And every now and then you have life interruptions, okay? Well, if there's a life interruption, you you know, parent ailing, we gotta go back, take care of that parent, then we can actually stop those payments in a period of time. Parent plus, uh, no, you're going to pay whether you work it or not, other compounds and all that, so you can stop it during that period of time. And if you decide to go work in a community to be a teacher, like you were, right? Yeah. Okay, and you're making below a certain amount, but you're doing good for the community, you do that for 20 years, and that's forgiven. But rather than pay that money back to the government, it pays back into the fund. And then that fund can relend that capital. And that's a virtuous cycle, okay? So that's what Student Freedom Initiative is, okay? And it's so that our students can borrow from this fund and they pay back into that fund. They can be re-borrowed. So now you're taking care of your own community through your work in that regard. That's what it is.
3: And the money goes back to the next generation of students. Right. So it's a recycle situation. Right.
0: I want to talk about an initiative and I think it's pretty amazing the the 2% solution. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh and correct me if I'm wrong but banks right the, the determine on the profits that they make off their investments they reallocate that back into their communities. They should. Well. Right. I'll let you talk about the initiative. But yeah.
2: well, that's the point it's like you know the average American individual gives about 2% of charity, you know to charity every year. Um and African-Americans are actually a little higher, and people call it a little higher. Um, and I said, well, if you just take that and apply that to corporations. So beyond just the dollars, it's the know-how, okay? So take 2% of your earnings, 2% of your profits, whatever it is, and now use that to enable the equitable opportunity, and listen to the words, equitable opportunity in the communities that support your business, right? Uh, if you are in a healthcare business, for instance, So why not take that and invest that in telemedicine solutions for communities that don't have access, right? If you're in the banking business, invest that in digital banking in the communities that don't have banks. My community that I grew up in didn't have a branch bank, okay? If you're in the supermarket business, 2% of that would go to providing access to high-quality foods, low-cost in the community. My community I grew up in did not have a supermarket. Still Mm -hmm. doesn't. Think about that, right? We had to drive across town or go to a local convenience store where the prices are 3, 4, 5X. You, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what the initiative is designed to do, is to bring a consciousness to how you can actually enable citizenry to have opportunities to participate, in that case, in our economy as full
0: citizens. That's what it's designed mm-hmm. to do. I mean, it feels pretty simple, right? <laughs> Makes sense to me.
3: Well, Mr. Smith, you've been a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you for joining us. Anything that you would like to leave the audience with? Any last words or anything that you would like I to leave? I will leave you of?
2: all with something. Make sure you continue to expand your voice. And we talked about this earlier this morning, the importance of you thinking about bringing scale to this platform and leave behinds so that the youth, that hear you or the parents that hear you can point their youth to your messages, your tools, and bring build systems for people to get more financially literate and enabled to be more effective in achieving their goals, which most people want financial independence and some freedom in their lives. Uh, And you all have a wonderful and great platform, and I sincerely mean that, and I congratulate you. Just continue to think about how you scale it effectively and efficiently. So good luck on that. And if I can ever be helpful, you know, just a text away.
3: Sure. Well, we tried to get you out. Of, we had a big thing called InvestFest last year and uh, Tyler Perry and Steve Harvey were the keynotes. He we was trying to get you, but yeah, you, were, you were out of, I think you were out of the country, right? Or you were on vacation. No, I remember. Yeah, but uh, who knows? Well, let me know. Maybe, Just maybe this year we can. Good. <laughs> I look forward keynote. to it. keynote. Yeah, <laughs> look forward Breaking to it. News a but, no, seriously, <laughs> love wanted, both those guys. Wanted to thank you for your time, and um, I'm sure we'll run into. It. Well, we're actually going to see, you next, next, we'll see, season, we'll see you next next week. See next week. Yeah. yeah, see you next week. See you next week. The last
2: time right. you see
0: us together.
3: Oh. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. No I appreciate problem. it. This is
0: a. Definitely off the bucket list of people that we wanted to sit down with. Um, I, I told this when I woke up this morning, I'm like, I can't believe this is actually happening today. So thank you uh, for blessing us with the knowledge and, and all pleasure. your service as well.
2: No, my pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a blessing to be here with you, brother. So keep doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you.
3: There you have right. it, guys. That's a wrap. All right, guys. <laughs> Good. Did you record it?
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> my graduates from my school being Forbes drop. backdrop, backdrop, <laughs> mic drop, backdrop, backdrop.
4: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.